All right, so last week uh, I spoke um, on a different subject. I kind of took a little bit of a segue. We spoke on, uh, we've been going over the book of James, and Susie uh, has been helping uh, with the kids, teaching them. Uh, I'm sure Bryce is out there singing with exuberance as well, uh, teaching them the, the word of God, the book of James, through song. And we took a break from that last week because a brother asked about the homelessness uh, scriptures and the poor scriptures found throughout the Bible. And so last week I spoke on that and we took a break from James. And to my surprise, uh, although it's a very sensitive subject and somewhat debatable subject within Christianity, I didn't receive a lot of backlash, if any, on what my take is on the responsibility of Christians as it relates to those in the homeless community and those that are poor, uh, but rather I received a lot of um, affirmation and uh, even from people that uh, weren't here, listened to the podcast and called and said, hey, I couldn't make it, but I listened to it and thanks for tackling that tough subject. Um, if, you, if you missed it last week, if you weren't here, I, I encourage you uh, to get on the podcast and listen to it. It was 46 minutes and 25 seconds long. Uh, so if you're driving from here to Olathe, uh, you can listen to it. Or if you're my, my wife, you're driving from here to Montrose in 46 minutes, you can listen to it at the same time frame. She's not in here, is she? All right, don't tell her I said that. Uh, but today we're going to look at the book of James, and we're going to continue on in the, 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 uh, the book of James. We're going to start in James chapter 3, and we're just going to look at verses 1 through 12. And uh, starting in verse 1, now many of you should be... Uh, many of you or I'm sorry, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are gilded are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grape vine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Excuse me. So the first 12 verses of chapter 3 are dealing with the concept of one, teachers, and two, the power of words. So we're going to look at those two subjects this morning, teachers and the responsibility that uh, they or we carry um, and also the danger of that position. And then we'll also look at the power of words. Now, we're going to look at first the, the responsibility and the dangers of standing up here at the pulpit. Uh, the responsibility and the danger of teaching the word of God to a group of people. In verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we 
who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man also or able also to bridle his whole body. Now, in the early church, we've got a we're going to talk a little bit about context and pretext. But in the early church, teachers were, were kind of rated of high esteem and rated of importance. If you look at the different passages that you see uh, in the book of Acts, you see it in Corinthians, you see it in Ephesians. In Acts chapter 13, the church at Antioch, they're ranked right among the apostles and prophets. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, they're rated, they're rated among the apostles and prophets again. And then in Ephesians, it says it was Christ who gave some to be apostles, prophets, pastor, teachers. And that pastor, teachers is a hyphenated word, meaning those that are teaching and those that are pastoring churches. And so the early church, when they're mentioned, they're mentioned with honor oftentimes. Now, they're also uh, warned throughout scriptures. I'm trying to get kind of a context of the book of James as James is talking to not many of you should presume to be teachers teaching the word of God. And in the book of James, when he says not many of you should presume to be teachers, there were some warnings given throughout the New Testament to those that were teaching Christianity. There was warnings in the Old Testament about those that were teaching the Torah, but there was those in the New Testament when when the writers like in the book of Acts, as uh, Luke is writing the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 15, there's this warning about these people that were coming into the early church in Acts 15, 24. They were coming into the early church and they were talking about circumcision and they were talking about obeying the law of Moses and said, in order to be a follower of Christ, you need to be circumcised in referring to circumcision of the flesh and you need to obey the whole law of Moses, the Torah. And so the writer is saying, no, that he gives us a doings, a record of the early church by saying, this is what these guys were saying, but we address the issue. And so if you look in Acts, uh, or I'm sorry, Romans chapter two, let's look at Romans chapter two and read that. In Romans chapter two, we have Paul writing and he's talking to the church at Rome and he's referencing some teachers there or some who had been teaching in Romans two, uh, verse 17 it says, but if you call yourself a Jew, Romans two seventeen through 24, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul is saying to the teachers, you call yourself teachers. You call yourself one expounding upon the law. But yet you're doing exactly what you're telling people not to do. He's challenging their hypocrisy. There's another example in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1 verse 6 and 7 and Paul's writing to Timothy and he's referencing people that didn't have the knowledge to teach. They didn't have the knowledge of the scriptures to tell people, hey, this thus saith the Lord. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6, it says certain persons by swerving from these talking about a good conscience and a sincere faith and a pure heart have wandered away into vain Discussion. I think the NIV says have wandered away from the truth, but I'm, I'm going off memory here. If you have the NIV, I think it says that. But in the seven, it says 
we'll go back. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They're so confident in what they're teaching, but they're saying these things in vain. And if you flip forward a couple of passages to 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see another reason why there's some warnings to teachers. And it says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions or to suit their own desires. So Paul is saying in the future, it's coming. There are going to be people that teach out of ignorance, that teach out of hypocrisy and that teach to tell people what they want to hear. And so when James is writing this book, this letter to the seven churches scattered throughout the nations, and he's saying, guys, not all of you should aspire to be teachers. This is a big deal. This is important. There's several examples we have where you, you, you just don't want to fall in that category because it says you will be judged more harshly. There will be condemnation. Now, as these teachers are coming in and, and, and they see that this is a position of authority, they see this is a position of, of elevation, if you will, in the early church. We see, we see I, think I, I think I have this in, uh, yep, I have it in my next note. I didn't want to miss this passage because it's important uh, from, the mouth, from the, the mouth of Jesus, from Jesus as he's sharing his thoughts on some of the struggles that the teachers were having or that their, where their heart was at. Um, we see that in the role of a teacher, if you kind of break it down to two main things in James 1, it's going to be these two things that he must. He must really care that what he is teaching is, is, is God's word. He must put a lot of thought and a lot of concern in that what he's teaching is not something out of context that may fit something that he previously believed. There's a saying in in Bible study that a text Taken out of context is a pretext. I'm like, well, that's that's kind of a play on words. I need to understand what a pretext is. A pretext is a preconceived notion of what the phrase means. And so, for example, if I have this idea of something in Scripture and I have this firm held belief that's foundationally so solid because of the way I was raised and I, I seek out the Scripture that's going to validate that belief, that's a pretext taken out of context. That is something I've already believed, so I want to I want to find I'm gonna prove to you what I believe is true by seeking out a scripture that will validate it, rather than looking at the context of something that may challenge my past belief. And so one of the dangers is that the preacher, every preacher, everybody that comes up here and does a communion homily, everybody that preaches a message, brother, is has to has to come to the scriptures with the humility says, what is God wanting to say here? What does God mean when he says this particular thing about this particular subject? And we almost have to come into it like a, a, a childlike faith going, God, I, my brain is so finite. My, my brain is, is so small <laughs> and I only use a small portion of it compared to God's ways and God's thoughts. For me to come to a subject and go, I know everything about this, or come to a subject that says, I want the power, I want the authority, I want the esteem, I want the elevation, so I'm going to teach what you want to hear so that I can feel better about myself. James is saying, guys, this is dangerous. 
You, not all of you should presume to be teachers because you better come at this with the most humble approach to God as you come to his word, which he gave to us through the prophets, which he gave to us through his followers, through his disciples, through his apostles. You better come to it with complete humility. The second reason is that we must be very careful that our teaching or rather our life doesn't contradict our teaching. We better make sure that what we're preaching up here, this is what James is, is, is referring to, and he's basing it, I feel like, through the Spirit of God, but there's passages in the Scripture where Jesus deals with this. If someone's life is saying, or someone's message is saying, don't do this, but then they walk through those doors and they do that, that doesn't look good for God. And we see that within religion over and over and over. We see that too many times on popular, well-known preachers, well-known leaders within the church that have this huge following and they have this massive fall from grace. They're in the pulpit saying, don't commit adultery and don't do drugs. And then they're caught in a hotel room with a crack pipe and a prostitute. It's real, guys. That happens all too often. And Jesus addresses this in Matthew 23 when he's talking about the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the day. And he says, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples. I'm in verse one. Now in verse two, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. They are in a position of authority because of the power it gives them. They're in a position of authority and teaching because it makes them feel important. And greetings in the marketplace in verse seven, it says, and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. That word rabbi means master or teacher. And he's saying these people, they don't do what they tell you to do. They tell you what to do if they do something else. But they just love to be called master. They just love to be called teacher. They just love to be called rabbi. And Jesus is condemning that. He's saying this isn't this isn't a positive thing that I'm saying here to these people. This is not good. But you are not to be called rabbi. I had a little side note here. I, I've got to do my, my rabbit trail today. I'm like, what's the difference between a rabbi and a priest and a Levite? Is all Levi, are all rabbis Levites? Are all Levites rabbis? And a rabbi was simply someone that taught the Torah. It was someone that taught the... Am I, am I right, brother? They were someone that taught the Torah. It wasn't necessary, uh, necessarily a Levitical priest. It was someone that had, had come through the studies and they had learned... The, the, they had learned the Pentateuch, they had learned the Torah, they had learned the, uh, what is that called in Deuteronomy, the Shema, they had learned the Shema, they had memorized it, and the memorization skills that they went through from the, from the time of childhood all the way up through a certain age as they were studying at 14, 12, 15 years old, and they were learning, and then they were teaching other people about the law, about what God's purpose was for their lives according to the Torah. And so what was interesting that I found out is it wasn't until, I think, the 7th century 
that we have recorded, and, and I'm, don't quote me on that, I'm just going off of what I just read a couple days ago or, uh, and last night and this morning, is that rabbis weren't paid. It was against the law, the Torah law, for a rabbi to be reimbursed or paid for teaching of God's word. And it wasn't until the 6th, 7th century that that became a thing. So they had other jobs. You know, Jesus was a carpenter. He was a craftsman. Paul, who was, you know, a rabbi, a teacher to people, and he had disciples. He was a tent maker. When they went in and took food, they, were, they, were, or they took food with them to different places so they would not be a burden on others. If you look through the lens of Scripture or the lens of that teaching through Scripture, you start seeing a little bit differently that these teachers of the law they were unpaid. And it, it even says that in Acts chapter 5. Aren't these unskilled and unlearned men? Aren't these people that are not paid to do this? Aren't these unprofessionals that are doing this? Anyway, sorry about that rabbit trail. I just thought it was interesting when I read it. And I checked it in several different areas. And I'm like, that the consensus is none of these rabbis were paid. Okay, back to what Jesus says, and you want the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a teacher... You, you need to be above reproach. You need to be living a life consistent with what you're preaching and with what you're teaching. And so when James says not all of you should presume to be this way because you will be judged more harshly. You will be judged more strictly. We see that not even just in the heavenly realms, but we see that in today's culture. If somebody makes a mistake and they have a, a moment of indiscretion, you go, oh, you know, people fall. They, they stumble. Let's take it easy on them. But if it's someone in a position of authority, oh, man, the entire world looks at it and goes, look at this hypocrite. This guy's terrible. That's why it's so important to make sure you're practicing what you're preaching if you're a preacher. Another thing that I want to make notice of or make note of is that as a preacher, as a teacher, we ought to remember something very important. In First Peter chapter four, and it's one of my favorite passages because it doesn't limit it to just the preachers in terms of serving the church. For those of you that walked into church this morning, this church, this brick and mortar building that we where the church body meets. Okay, for those of you that walked in here, you got to understand what this passage is saying. It's saying in verse 10, as each has received a gift, okay, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. What is the point of preaching and teaching? Say it, Brian. God is glorified. That's the point of preaching and teaching is to give homage to the creator of the universe. And so James is saying not all of you should presume to be teachers, because if you look at the history of the church, there are people that are teaching for their own glory, for their own power, for their own fame. For their own escalation and exaltation. That is why they are preaching and teaching. They love to be called rabbis 
and fathers and teacher and instructor. They love to go in the marketplace and go, oh, there he is. And I've been in situations like that where somebody walks in. They're obviously a religious leader and the people around get like awestruck. What do you get that where, where you have when you have a, a um, oh, my sister used to say it. I don't get uh, when you have famous people starstruck. Thank you. Who said that? Brian, you're on point today. You're, we're simpatico right now. Starstruck. My, my sister's got a hug from President Bush, uh, and, and she's met Tiger Woods at a golf course when she was working there. And she's uh, uh, Christy Alley from Cheers, you know, this actress is, considers my sister her friend. And my sister's like, I don't. <laughs> they're just people. In fact, so and so's kind of messed up, you know. So they're just people. They're just people. But that's not how a lot of the religious leaders today and back then when James is dealing with it, that's they were not just people in their minds. It was like, oh, here comes so and so. And that's opposite of what our Savior teaches. It says you're all brothers. You don't you don't elevate people like that. You're brothers. They're they're held accountable. And, And Peter is saying each of you should use whatever gift you have received. You're faithfully administering God's grace. You're handing out God's grace in its various forms, whether it's teaching, whether it's serving, whether it's encouraging. So um, I want to be candid that I've been I've been challenged on subjects in the last however long, 10 mom, 10, 12 years I've been preaching. I've been challenged on subjects from people in the congregation, whether it be right there after the sermon or afterwards or call me later on the phone and say, I need to challenge you on something. And because I fear God and because I fear his his warnings, I don't go, well, who are you to challenge me? <laughs> you know what I say? I got I got to think about this. I appreciate I appreciate the challenge because I don't want to be wrong here. If I'm teaching something, I don't want to be wrong in what I'm teaching. So I'm going to look at this subject in depth. I might come back in six months, but I'm going to study this one out. And James is exhorting these people. Don't just presume. Just don't presume to be these. Just don't desire it so much because those of you that do will be judged with greater strictness. And then the next eight or nine verses in the Bible talks about something that is so applicable to all of you if you're never going to stand up here at this pulpit and preach. If you're never going to lead a group of people and teach them, thus saith the Lord. This is applicable to every single one of you today. The practical application. And it's the power of words. Now, I understand in the context, James is talking about the power of words of leaders and saying, how powerful is the tongue? It's like a bit put in a horse. It's like the rudder on a ship with a little bit of energy and effort. It can steer the whole ship one direction or take the whole horse another direction. I understand he's talking about it in the context of teachers. But this whole passage, 2 through 12, tells me there is so much power In the words we speak, it can change the course of history. I'll give you an example. Adolf Hitler. 
He spoke a nationalistic, racist rhetoric that caused the death of millions and millions of innocent people. Uh, There is a teaching back in 2001 that came to fruition where towers were flown into by an airplane because of a rhetoric, because of a belief, because of a teaching. It's the, the words that are spoken can change the course of history. If you look at media today and you look at and I'm not getting political because I'll share with you both sides of the aisle. Two examples. If you look at media today, incorrectly taking out of context something that is said can cause an entire group of people to hate somebody else on a false narrative. And I'll start with the left side, not you left, or I don't know which direction I'm standing, but I'll take the, the more liberal-leaning side that, 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 say, Jack Trapper from CNN, okay? Jack Trapper from CNN, or Tapper, sorry, Jake, Jake did I say Jack Trapper? I wasn't even close. Jake Tapper from CNN, somebody sent a quote that said, at CNN, Jake Tapper says, Allahu Akbar is beautiful, quote, right after the end uh, New York City terror attack. So this this conservative media group takes a portion of a quote and says CNN's Jake and they put it in the, the Twitter or X or whatever. CNN's Jake Taper Tapper says Allahu Akbar. Allahu Akbar is beautiful right after New York City attack. But that wasn't the context in which Jake Tapper said that. What he said was um, the Arabic chant. Allahu Akbar, God is great, sometimes said under the most beautiful of circumstances, and too often we hear it of being said in moments like this. He actually, in the context of his report on CNN, was condemning the attack and was stating that the chant that was used is used in certain situations that are beautiful, like a wedding, and not just used in a horrific attack or a terrorist attack. And so people who took that out of context said this guy is a terrorist sympathizer. Okay? So from the far right, they took something out of context to make somebody on the far left look bad, and it caused people, probably including me when I first read it without doing some research to go, man, that guy, those typical liberal media, those typical liberal people are all about, you know, the the terrorist movement. Okay? Being honest. Now, go to the other side of the aisle, and you have a president, Donald Trump, that says something about Charleston, Virginia. And how there was a there was something going on and they were taking down the statue of Robert E. Lee. And so all of a sudden you have the social media or, or news media saying that Donald Trump is a sympathizer by saying this. Uh, let me find my place that there were very fine people on both sides. And so he was being accused of saying that there were very fine people In the neo-Nazi white supremacist group. That's what he was accused of. And so there are large portions of America that are going, this guy is racist because he is supporting neo-Nazi. So a little while later, he gets uh, challenged by a reporter. And this is the full quote when he's challenged by this about the the Robert E. Lee um, statue being torn down. He says, excuse me, excuse me. They didn't put themselves... Uh, brain fog. And then he says, and you had some very bad people in that group. 
But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And the reporter continued to press him. And he says, further questioning led him to say, you're changing history. You're changing culture. And you had people, and I'm not talking about the neo-Nazis and the white nationalists because they should be condemned totally. But you had many people in that group other than neo-Nazis and white nationalists. So what Donald Trump was saying in context is that there were people that were pro-removing the statue. There were people that were anti-removing the statue. There were good people on both sides. I'm not talking about the crazies. I'm talking about the other normal people that were there. Okay? That just shows you there is so much power in what we read and what we hear, and that when we change the context of something, it can change our opinion of who God is in the Bible. That's why not all of us should presume to be teachers because we will be judged more harshly or more strictly. So, what does that have to do with you? I don't care if you're left or right. It doesn't matter. It's your decision between you and God and your belief system. But what does it have to do with you at your home? The power of words where he talks about the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It sets other among our members, staining the whole body. It can direct the horse. It can direct the ship. How does that affect you today? When I was 12, I went to my first public school, Montgomery Middle School. And I'd gone to Christian schools from the time I was in preschool or whatever they call it back then, first through fifth grade. And it was fairly smaller schools and people all had kind of the same ideology because it was a private Christian school. Well, then I got sent to Montgomery Middle School, sixth grade. I was about this tall in sixth grade. I was I was young for my grade. I think I was 11 years old or something like that, 12 years old in sixth grade. And I had no friends at all. So I go to class the first day and I make a couple buddies. But at the same time, there's always the bigger eighth grade guys that are a little bit uh, not so nice to the new kid coming in. And so all of a sudden I start hearing comments about my shoes or I hear comments about my Little League jacket. I still remember the guy, Bobby Petretta. I, I still remember that name. Bobby Petretta made a comment about the Little League I played for because I was wearing an all-star jacket at 11 years old and he made a comment, oh, that doesn't sound like a very strong league. And I just kind of brushed it off and I went home and I was talking to my parents about it and I was like, man, these guys, these people are making fun of my shoes, they're making fun of my, my jacket in the league. And you know what I was told? Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Like baloney. That's not true. Because it hurt in here. The words that I heard didn't make me feel good. I didn't have a broken arm, but my spirit felt broken at the time. Is that making sense? So that saying out there that sticks and stones may break your bones is not, it's malarkey as far as I'm concerned. And I recognize my job as a parent is to raise up my kids to have the confidence that when someone says that, I go, <laughs> consider the source, right, Dad? Consider the source. But it still doesn't feel good. I'm 46 years old, and two weeks ago, I left a county meeting going, man, I'm not a greedy developer like this guy yelled out in front of everybody. I had to consider the source, but initially, I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to create housing opportunity for the community, which we're called to do by the county commissioners and city planners, and so I'm doing it, and they're like, oh, he's just a greedy developer. And I'm like, I'm not a, people that know me know I'm not greedy. They know I'm not a greedy developer. My wife knows me. My parents, my friends know me. 
but it didn't feel good, even at 46 years old, to have something negative said of me that wasn't true. So words do matter. Even though I am confident, they still hurt. So that's just talking about my sixth grade experience, my work experience. But what about, what about you guys? What about your uh, relationship with your children, if you have children? Um, what is their inner voice telling them when you're not speaking out loud? What are you saying to them because the ship is being guided by a small tongue? The horse is being guided by a small bit. So what are your... What are your kids hearing when you speak? What are your kids hearing in their head when they're going to school or when they're walking down the hallway or when they're on the field or when they're at work or with their buddies? What you say is molding them. The words that we speak are powerful. And we're called in Ephesians 6, fathers, do not Embitter, do not exasperate your children to anger. That's what we're called to. Because God knows what we hear is who we become oftentimes. When I talk about how do I speak to my children, do they leave the house feeling like a loser or you're stupid? Now, I will confess I have said what you did was stupid. But I don't think I've ever said you are stupid. Because I know they're not. But I have said That was the dumbest thing I think you've ever done. And you've done a lot of dumb things. Because what they did was dumb. But they're not dumb. They just made a dumb decision. So how we word things is very important. You can be better, do better, because you are better. So when we think about the power of words, how about this? Shame on you. Hollis's favorite thing when it comes to child-rearing classes. Shame on you. I'm not going to put shame on my kids. No way. What I will say is you're better than that. You can do better than that. Because words are power. What about siblings? If you have siblings, are are your conversations building up your brothers and sisters? Or are your words tearing them down? Think about that if you have siblings. Are your words building them up or are your words tearing them down? Because your words are powerful. Ooh, now we're going to get to the tough one. How about your spouse? How do you talk to your spouse? If words are so powerful, when you speak to your wife or husband and you're done, does she feel better? Does he feel better or does she feel worse or does he feel worse? How does your spouse feel when you're done talking to them? Guys, this is real stuff. This is not like, oh, preach. No, this is in here. Husbands, love your wives, respect them. Wives, submit to your husbands, honor them. This is in the word of God because it's so important how we feel based on what we hear. And if we're hearing you're worthless, why don't you work harder? Or if you're hearing you keep burning the toast, you're a terrible wife. That's what she's going to become. And that's what he's going to become. Words have power in them. I keep saying it because it's true. 
And we see James from the teaching perspective going, you've got to be careful on this stuff. James chapter 3, verse 9 and 10 says, With the tongue we bless, with it, meaning our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. God's saying, James is saying, God's saying through James, you can't be cursing, you can't be cursing mankind in one for in one breath and then and then blessing God in another breath. That's just in another breath. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. I want to read something real quick and then I'll close uh, with the passage. Aristippus the Greek, he was a philosopher. He had a wise saying, and the saying was this the conqueror of pleasure, and he's referring to uh, the book of James here. Where it says, not many of you should become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He says, the conqueror of pleasure is not the man who never uses it. He is the man who uses pleasure as a rider guides a horse or a steersman directs a ship. And so directs them wherever he wishes. Abstaining from anything is never a complete substitute from control and its use. James is not pleading for a cowardly silence but for a wise use of speech. James is not saying, you know, become like the the Trappist monks found in the 17th century that took vows of silence. That's not what James is saying. What he's saying is use your speech wisely. And how do we use our speech wisely? I'm going to finish with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. It's a very clear directive. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another... And build one another up. Encourage one another and build one another up. If you struggle with that concept, this is a great place to be. This is a great place to be. If you struggle with the idea of building up your children, building up your husband, building up your wife, building up your siblings, building up your friends, building up your coworkers. If you struggle with that and you tear them down instead of build them up. This is a good place to be because you will be encouraged to say, no, think positively. Look at the good things that they do. Look at the good things that she does. There's got to be. You wouldn't have married her if there wasn't something good about her. You wouldn't have married him if there was something good about him. If there wasn't anything. Is that making sense? So look at the positive and build each other up because Lord knows we get torn down plenty when we walk out these doors. We don't want to be an army that shoots its wounded. Don't be an army that shoots its wounded. Let's pray. And then I want to share with you uh, a bunch of food. I made it all. It's over there. I'm just kidding. (laughs) There's a lot of food. There's a lot of food in there. If you didn't bring a dish, it doesn't matter. We have plenty. Um, If you don't eat it, then I'll have leftovers tonight. Most likely is what happens. Because my wife makes such a wonderful moose loaf. Um, So let's pray and then uh, we'll have communion and we'll fellowship uh, in the fellowship hall. Father, thank you so much for your written word. Thank you for the encouragement, uh, the exhortation, the challenge that you give us through the writers. Lord, uh, I know this is a difficult uh, concept for many of us. I understand that encouraging one another is hard because sometimes we have pain in our own souls that is hard to deal with. And so we, we take it out on other people. But Father, I pray that we take your words to heart. 
as a church body, as individuals within our own homes, uh, within our own lives, that we learn to become positive people that build each other up and encourage one another. And Father, I also pray specifically for Steve, uh, for Brian, for Justin, for Therese, uh, for anybody, for Jared, for anybody who gets up here and and teaches from your word that we do it, including myself, we do it with reverence uh, of what you have to say, that we do it with humility and we recognize the power in what we say and that we make sure that what we are teaching is your will and not ours. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.